0: Hello, everyone. I am Mariah Muhammad with Becker's Healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Scott Davis, Managing Director at Provident Healthcare Partners, and Jake Vesely, Vice President of Provident Healthcare Partners. Scott and Jane, thank you so much for being here today. How are you both?
1: Doing well. Thanks for having us, Mariah.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, uh, today we will discuss all things dealing with physician group deals, including any trends, challenges, and opportunities for growth in that space. Um, With that, we can dive right into our conversation today. So uh, to get us started, Scott, could you please give us some background on Provident Healthcare Partners?
1: Yes, absolutely. So Provident is an investment bank. Um, As our name suggests, we do concentrate solely within the healthcare services realm. So our core competency is providing merger and acquisition advisory services to the owners and operators of healthcare businesses, particularly over the last 10 years or so, when we've seen the influx of private equity investment into physician practices, um, we've actually focused there as well. About three quarters of our deal flow today is in a variety of subspecialties within uh, physician practices with a particularly strong focus in the kind of broader musculoskeletal uh, arena. So as I mentioned, we work on behalf of those owners and operators of those companies, Um, we run a thoughtful and and detailed process to find them the right partner, which can be valued on a lot of different things, Uh, dollars and cents, of course, strategic fit alignment with long term goals and the like, really our goal is to make sure that we're talking to the right partners on behalf of our clients, we're maximizing value at every turn. And ensuring that that partnership really comes to fruition because within these transactions, they're never really a sure thing until we get to the finish line, but we are very adept in in making sure that that happens and that, uh, again, the fit is maximized for our clients.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that background. And physician group deals were elevated last year, but some recent reports point to a slowdown in 2023, interestingly enough. Um, Now that we're halfway through the year, in your view, Jake, if you don't mind answering, what are some of the top challenges and opportunities you're seeing in this area? And also, what's surprising you?
2: Yeah, so, you know, in terms of opportunities that we're seeing, you know, the musculoskeletal space, particularly orthopedics and neurosurgery, still remain highly fragmented and while there has been an uptick in the new number of platforms over the last several years, there is still a significant opportunity for consolidation and even a first mover opportunity in several of the states that haven't undergone PE consolidation yet. You know, that said, you mentioned there has been a slowdown in M&A activity in 2023, and I think this is partially driven by some of the macro concerns we're seeing across the economy and in other sectors. I think, Groups feel like they may have missed an opportunity in 2021 to transact when valuations were at their peaks, and if they sell today, you know, they think they may be selling at a discount. And I think the reality is, in the PPM space, this really isn't the case. Um, You know, valuations have remained elevated, um, you know, despite some of the challenges we are seeing in the macro environment right now. You know, I think there may be fewer evaluate, outlier valuations like we saw in 2021, but top quality assets are still trading north of 10 times and into the low teens. And this is primarily driven by the uh, demand for quality assets and the competitiveness that we're seeing in you know, these bank led processes. And, and there are definitely some challenges on the lending side, you know, like I alluded to. That said, in, in many of the smaller transactions or add on transactions, Buyers have been willing to utilize up to 100% equity to, to fund these transactions, and on larger deals, you know, groups are getting very creative with structure, whether that be utilizing mezz debt or seller financing, um, and ultimately just trying to find various ways that they can bridge the gap on, uh, whether it's funding or valuation, um, to make sure that they're able to you know, still close on these transactions. And I think at the end of the day, buyers are, you know, coming to terms with where rates are at today. And, you know, this, this really just isn't preventing deals from getting closed. You know, there's over 20 platforms in the MSK space today and a growing number of private equity investors that are looking to start new platforms. And I think there's just simply too much competition for multiples to see significant uh, depression um, because of some of these challenges. And I think in terms of other challenges we're seeing beyond interest rates and at the macro level, um, you know, I think some of the challenges we're seeing and what we'll continue to see for the foreseeable future is challenges around the labor market and recruiting, um, you know, challenges regarding downward pressure on reimbursement, uh, referral challenges, you know, regulatory and reporting challenges, you know, all of which I think are just making it overall increasingly difficult for independent practices to remain independent, and I I know we don't have a ton of time to get into each of these issues, but generally these are several of the key reasons we see groups looking to partner with private equity and other like minded physician groups to create scale and to be able to succeed in this environment. And and lastly, you you know you asked what is surprising me today, and I think what surprised me and, and you know us as a firm is. Just a slower pace of consolidation in the musculoskeletal space compared to what we've seen in other specialties. So relative to the number of independent groups across the country, it seems like the pace of consolidation within orthopedics and, and neuro specifically, are materially behind compared to what we've seen in spaces like ophthalmology and dermatology and GI and, and other various uh, you know subspecialties over the years. It, it generally seems like or so when neuropractices are a little bit more resistant to PE than other uh, subspecialties of physician practice. You know, a a common response we hear when discussing with orthopedic or uh, neurosurgery practices, you know, early on is, you know, they are, they say they already have ancillaries such as MRI or PT and ASCs, or the doctors are happy with where their compensation is at today. And I think, you know, generally some of those responses are just a little bit, short-sighted. Um, you know, I think practices really need to think about where they might stand in, in five to ten years from now with you know the increasing number of challenges that independent position practices are, are facing and, and think through if private equity could help them become better positioned you know, as the industry continues to face these challenges and, and evolve over time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that insight. I think you know everything you said is definitely important to note because of its sudden change. Uh, Scott, for you, what are some of the common factors that lead practices to consider transactions and how are these deals usually structured?
1: Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of what leads a a practice to do a deal would be honestly just the day-to-day burdens of running a business and how those can mount over time and um, can can be particularly burdensome, particularly for a physician-owned business where... Of course, the revenue generation is through those physicians practicing clinically. Uh, otherwise, the business isn't generating those those profits. Um, so things like you know back office burdens, reporting, compliance, regulatory, day to day management, all these types of things can again mount over time. And ideally, the partner that's coming in is taking you know a large portion of that, if not all of that, off the the plate of certainly the physician shareholders. And to the extent there's existing uh, business infrastructure in place, it'd be looking to expand upon that and bolster that. Um, To be clear, we don't necessarily see these transactions leading to mass layoffs and things of that nature. For businesses in the kind of the lower middle market where these deals are getting done, they're actually looking to add capabilities in pretty much all instances. So again, it's about kind of reducing that burden on the position shareholders while also allowing for the professionalization and expansion of those those capabilities post-close. Um, I would also say another factor leading to deals is competition. So whether that be just the local other kind of like-minded groups that you've been competing with for years, um, you know, gaining more ground, certainly the influx of private equity investment to the extent one of those local competitors takes on a private equity partner, well, they'll certainly be coming from a competitive standpoint. We're seeing a lot of that take place on a regional basis when it really Comes to your front door, prospective uh, sellers start to think, you know, maybe there's something to this, and maybe I need to consider a transaction partner, uh, or even just local hospital and health system dynamics. There's obviously been a consistent and ongoing, uh, you know, battle for lack of a better term or friction between the outpatient groups and hospitals in many cases, and um, the ability to again bolster those capabilities in the outpatient setting. Uh, increase uh, infrastructure will allow you to compete with those larger health systems in a in a better way moving forward. Um, I would also say uh, the opportunity to bring in growth equity or you know capital assistance is super important for prospective sellers. So there's pretty much always going to be a long list of growth opportunities or you know projects that a practice is looking to take on that you know could be limited or just shied away from for the capital needs that are required to make those things happen. And so. Lots of times, you know, it's a nice and welcome addition to have that capital partner at your side, ridding yourselves as a physician shareholder of the personal guarantees that come with taking on, you know, debt as a, you know, a truly uh, privately owned business and utilizing the capabilities, but also financial resources of your partner to go out and capitalize on things. You know, an example that comes to mind pretty commonly in the orthopedic sector is, you know, the development of an ASC, for example. Um, You know, if you're in a state where there's CON requirements, there's certainly going to be regulatory hurdles. Uh, lots of legal costs, and then just the actual capital outlay to develop a a location and the real estate that goes with it. Um, Those are the types of things that are very much welcomed by a private equity partner in that um, they're, you know, adapted doing these types of growth projects, but also it's going to yield, you know, ideally large amounts of revenue and profitability for the combined partnership after completed. Um, And then the final category I'd like to touch on for, for rationale for doing a deal would just be equity value. So we typically see privately held practices um, upon someone's retirement or leaving the business, a variety of different ways that they're compensated for that. Um, You know, some of which could be um, a set buyout amount. Um, Some could be just the return of what the initial investment was to become a partner. Again, that could have been decades prior. So not typically a large amount Um, or even something like just the retention of your uh, accounts receivable as a single physician for a period of time post-close. So none of which we typically have seen as being, you know, totally life-changing for that individual. Um, whereas, you know, doing a transaction today will uniquely present the opportunity to maximize the value of that equity. To candidly, something very much different and more meaningful than those private transactions uh, usually yield. So it's a unique thing for certainly retiring positions, but also for, you know, those at the beginning of their career as a partner or employee position and mid-career. And each of those brings unique dynamics to kind of the, the post-close um, life for those individuals. Um, and then in terms of structure, um, you know, I think I'd start first with um, position compensation. So the way uh, adjusted EBITDA is created in these transactions, which is ultimately the number that has a multiple applied to it that creates the enterprise value for, for an asset. Um, the way that the majority of that's created is through the normalization or reduction in shareholder compensation. And so what we usually look to do is Look at what a local uh, position um, would earn for that given subspecialty and geography, and you know, tie a position shareholder comp, something certainly not lower, ideally a little bit higher for recruiting purposes, but in that same ballpark. And then the excess compensation above that across the entire shareholder group creates a pool of capital that is, you know, that adjusted EBITDA. Um, there are another a, a number of other you know additional things that could contribute to that number and grow it, and some considerations there to keep be mindful of. But at its core. You know, I think uh, physician compensation reductions is certainly a core competency of these structure of these transactions. Um, in terms of you know the equity I alluded to before, these physician deals, unless you're someone retiring upon close, you're really going to be expected to roll over or reinvest a portion of your ownership. So for a physician practice, we typically see anywhere from at a bare minimum, 25 or 20% of, of proceeds reinvested and usually closer to 30, 40 plus reinvested in the business. And What that means is it's an additional kind of go-forward ownership in the broader platform that will be developed. And ideally, in the coming three, five, seven years, there will be a subsequent liquidity event that you get to participate in um, by virtue of that retained ownership. And it also gives the incoming um, uh, private equity partner confidence and comfort that you, the physician and shareholder, are going to remain tied to the business and productive because you've got that additional kind of carrot down the road, so to speak, to, to work towards. Um, I'd also mention that there will be new employment agreements put in place, certainly for uh, the physician shareholders, and in some cases, employee positions, but not always. And there's going to be, so long as you've got the right kind of counsel on your side, market terms in place around non-competes and and things of that nature, but that would be an expectation. And then the last thing I'll touch on is this concept of being either a platform or an add-on type of of, uh, practice, Um, platform being an initial insertion point into Um, For example, the orthopedic space for a private equity investor, around which um, there will be development made over that five-year, roughly, time frame to develop into a larger business, as opposed to uh, an add-on acquisition being just that, someone being tacked on to a broader platform, both of which can bring unique uh, positive and negative dynamics to them, which are very much case-specific, but that's a common thing we see uh, a question for prospective sellers have.
0: Got it, got it. Thank you so much for giving us that information. Um, Jake, if I can go back to you for a second, based on your experience, what is the biggest challenge for practices undergoing transactions? Uh, why do deals go south? And also, if you can answer, what resources, tools, or best practices do you recommend to organizations who are navigating this process? Yeah, so
2: I think some of the biggest challenges we see for practices undergoing transactions are simply a lack of preparation and and a lack of shareholder alignment going into a transaction. And I think one of the most important things a practice can do is to team up with an investment banking advisor and experienced transaction counsel very early on in the process. I think we see a lot of practices and unfortunately, especially in the musculoskeletal space, a lot of um, orthopedic and, and neurosurgeons who really think they can do the transaction themselves and just figure it out as they go. But In reality, if you want the best outcome for the practice and want to know that you fully vetted all potential partnership options and closed at the best possible terms, then you should really partner with a team of advisors who have done hundreds of these transactions to help guide you through that process. And like I mentioned, I mean, really practices should be engaging those advisors as early on as possible. There's a lot of light work that can be done, um, you know, before... Entering the market or starting discussions with potential partners on the banking side. You no, know, I think doing evaluation analysis. So Scott mentioned how some of these transactions are structured earlier, but really just making sure each partner fully understands how their compensation could be structured, and inversely how that affects the valuation of the practice. And more importantly, there is making sure they're comfortable with. Um, you know, that proposed structure and that there's alignment between the partners prior to going to market. On on the legal and PAC side, um, you know, that's understanding if the practice needs to do any restructuring, you know, or any other uh, legal changes to align with the the compensation structure that we just alluded to. Um, You know, there's also reviewing legal documents uh, and payer contracts to understand if there's any uh, consents required. Um, understanding the licensing and certificate of need requirements. I mean, there's a lot of other nuances as well that you know the practice should get ahead of you know prior to formally entering the market. Um, you know, I think beyond that, you know, just more broad decisions. You know, what does leadership and the approval process look like for the practice when you start to go down this path? Uh, what will the plan be for retiring partners or partner or associates that are on partnership track? Um, you know all of these various, you know, decision-making processes um, that will inevitably come up during due diligence, if not earlier. Um, you know, the practice needs to be aligned and have a well thought-out strategy on on how to approach these various issues. And, and as to why these deals go south, I would say the number one reason we run into is the decline in financial performance. So getting an attractive valuation at the LOI stage is great, but the practice performance needs to follow, you know, throughout due diligence. And a a vicious cycle that we hear about all too often is, you know, practice signs an attractive LOI with a potential buyer. And, you know, they haven't done a lot of upfront prep work. Um, You know, then they receive very detailed request lists, you know, from the buyer and their third parties. And, you know, they start to get overwhelmed handling these requests. They oftentimes don't have an investment banker to help them manage these requests. And as a result, they're spending less time practicing medicine, which causes the financial performance of the business to decline accordingly. You know, from there, the buyer ultimately proposes a retrade of the deal and the sellers end up either walking or having to accept a a new, you know, uh, deal at a much lower valuation. And, you know, I think to avoid this, just in general, the goal should be doing as much upfront preparation as possible with your third-party advisors. And and that also includes uh, doing reverse diligence on the potential buyers as well uh, prior to running the process and and signing an LOI uh, so that when you do sign that LOI and enter into exclusivity, you're closing as fast as possible and the third-party advisors are handling the, the bulk of the diligence work streams so that the uh, physician can focus on, you know, the day-to-day operations of the practice.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Jake, for giving us that insight. I think everything you said will definitely help our listeners in this area for sure. Um, Scott, before I let you both go, the last thing I wanted to ask you is how can a successful transaction ultimately support independent practices, their growth and their care delivery in general? And also, can you share any success stories among Providence partners?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think there's a number of ways to try to measure that. A few ideas come to mind. Uh, I mentioned earlier some of the reasons why uh, people consider a transaction, but the first one being just kind of day-to-day lifestyle, work style, um, and that is, you know, are they trying to rid themselves of some of that kind of daily management and the burdens that come with it? To the extent that is a goal for uh, shareholder physicians, taking a look back, uh, you know, post-close after a reasonable period of time, has that come to fruition? You know, are they are they able to focus more on their clinical duties where they prefer to be, or if the goal was to transition more towards admin and away from clinical, has that been facilitated? So I think that work-life balance is one way to look at it, and have those goals been fulfilled and achieved? Um, I would say uh, just more generally, the growth of the business, right? So pretty easy way to measure. If things are going a quarter in the plan, is our revenue and profits up? Right, that's going to be measured daily, weekly, monthly, annually, and you can see that pretty clearly. Um, one kind of offshoot from that that's particularly um, you know attractive, in one way where private equity partners look to drive value longer term would be actually on the payer contracting side. So you know, growth doesn't have to just be more physicians seeing more patients. It can even just be you know where the the payer rates apply to that same book of business you do today. And naturally, if that goes up by 5 or 10% through additional resources and contracting capabilities, well, the revenues are going to soar as a result. So um, that can be, albeit a little bit longer term, usually in nature, a way to measure things as well from a growth standpoint. Um, I would say for kind of patient satisfaction or care delivery, um, you know, to the extent the diversification of service offerings was a goal, um, making more of kind of a one-stop shop for whatever that kind of, uh, you know, care modality is, um, is something we typically see, and to do so also in the outpatient setting. So the example I gave earlier around a potential growth uh, uh, avenue was the development of an ASC. So not only does that create you know better outcomes um, for the patient, um, lower hospital readmission rates, but also cost savings to the overall system and profits for the business. Um, to the extent those types of things have, have happened, you can certainly you know, rest assured that clinical qualities have, have gone up and you can do your best to measure those things through certainly the outcomes, as I mentioned, but also um, patient satisfaction scores as well. That would be a very good way to kind of measure things a little bit longer term in nature um, as well. And then also, I would say uh, the equity value. So longer term, as I mentioned before, there's going to be a reinvestment in the business that at some point in the future, when your partner looks to um, divest themselves, of the ownership um there'll be a subsequent event and you know has the value of your equity gone up from the initial transaction has it stayed the same you know god forbid has it gone down again another way to really gauge as to whether this partnership was fruitful um and kind of achieved its goals uh in terms of examples you know as jake alluded to we've done over 100 physician deals so we could go on and on probably about these and i was just thinking today there was one deal i did uh back in the 2019 time frame that i've seen go through that kind of second liquidity iteration, which I thought could be a valuable uh, example here. And that is a group called uh, Southeast Gastro. It was a uh, gastroenterology practice of about 20 physicians, about uh, a half to two thirds of those were shareholders um, based in the, uh, the Birmingham, Alabama market. Um, we ultimately did a transaction for them with um, a group called Gastro Health, which was backed by a private equity partner called Audax Group we'd run a really thoughtful and dynamic process for them that left them with options kind of at the LOI stage of both being a private equity platform or going the route that they ultimately did, and that is joining a strategic partner like Health. So we gave them optionality, um, you know, valuation were certainly maximized and kind of checked that box. So then it became, well, who's the right partner? Um, You know, Health had done a really great job of developing their platform in the state of Florida, but specifically only the state of Florida at that time. They were looking to move to other regions. This was their first foray, um, certainly in Alabama, but outside of Florida more generally. So it gave our client, um, you know, the value of a platform type of dynamic, but also um, some of the autonomy that comes with being, you know, certainly a regional hub and not, you know, right next door to the, the ultimate partner. Um, while also the assurance that they were joining a group that was well founded, uh, well, you know, uh, backed from a financial standpoint with Audax and kind of the assurances around equity value long-term, which ultimately they saw come to fruition in 2021, when Gasser Health and Audax exited to uh, a larger private equity partner called OMERS. Um, our understanding is, you know, not only were our clients very happy with the initial transaction, um, the partners they had throughout that kind of, you know, following two or three year timeframe, but also the, the second liquidity event that they saw as well. And many of them still reside with that business today. So. Uh, one of many examples I thought I'd share and kind of the full life cycle of uh, what that partnership can look like.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for answering that last question. Uh, Scott and Jane, thank you so much for being here today uh, for this discussion. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Of course. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Provident Healthcare Partners. You can tune into more podcasts and virtual events from Becker's Healthcare by visiting beckershospitalreview.com.